Ellen Robbins-Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to Medically Speaking. I don't know. Tom changed the name of my show. What's it all about? I think he called it, right? So welcome to Medically Speaking, and we're Medically Speaking in the morning um, at this time of the month. So we're really excited to be able to highlight some of our services and our newer physicians that have joined St. Mary's Hospital and the Franklin Medical Group. So today I have the privilege of introducing a brand new physician that has joined St. Mary's Hospital and the Franklin Medical Group, and I have with me today Dr. Depinder Osahan. Hi, Robin. How Osahan are you? is easy. How do we say your first name? De- Depinder. Oh, I said it right. Yeah, you said Depinder. it right. Depinder. Good. Yeah. Osahan, and you are a pulmonologist. Yes. Recently joined us. How? When did you come? About three, four weeks ago. Three or four weeks ago. I met you during your interview process and oh, yeah. um, was really impressed with you. Along with the Franklin Medical Group team, we were so excited that you chose St. Mary's Hospital to practice your your profession, so we're really happy to have you. Well, it's been a great start. It's been a great start. Yeah, we're keeping you busy. I I went downstairs to his office the other day. I said, hmm, we need to get him on the radio (laughs) as soon as possible just to get the name out. So we really want to talk a little bit about you and about pulmonology, the specialty, and what it does, and when someone chooses a pulmonologist or how that happens. But first, I want to know a little bit about you. So where do you come from? Where do you hail from? Well, I, I grew up mostly in New York. So, you know, went to high school and, you know, middle school and college and pretty much, uh, so Manhattan, Brooklyn, Long Island. City boy. Yeah, I've lived all of, all over the place, you know. Um, so finally did my training in pulmonary in, in, uh, Winthrop in Long Island. Um, and now we're in Connecticut. Now you're in Connecticut. So what made, drove you to our market when you were out there looking for where you wanted to practice? What drove you to St. Mary's? Well, I think one was the atmosphere. You know, it's completely different compared to New York. Mm. Um, and, even, and even within three weeks of just being here, I can, I can, you know, I can feel the difference. That's so good. And yeah. we're busy. We're going to keep you busy oh. right away, right? The office is busy. That's always a good thing, yeah. So you are with Dr. Barry. Dr. Barry and, and Dr. Zhang. Yes. And so now we have three of you along with Dr. Kaladner, who's also a, p- a pulmonologist and specializing in sleep. So you're in the Franklin Medical Build, the Scoville Medical Building, yes. which is 133 Scoville Street, and you're on our first floor. I think it's Suite 104, right? Exactly. Suite 104. So we have in there now three pulmonologists along with actually fourth pulmonologist, Dr. Kaladner, who specializes in sleep but also does pulmonary medicine. So we're we're growing by leaps and bounds in pulmonary. So today I think what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about pulmonary medicine. First, why did you specialize in that and what's the path to that to become a pulmonologist? Uh, Well, you know, when I was doing internal medicine, obviously you get exposure to all the different specialties. Um, But you know the real, the severe pulmonary disease is what you, is what you see in the ICU. Mm-hmm. And when I was in the ICU, it was very high pace, but also you have potential to you know to, to turn things around uh, very quickly. Um, right. And I think that exposure and then just being more exposed to pulmonary, I was like, this is kind of this is what I want to do. This is the field I want to get into. Exactly. This is this is my passion. Exactly. You know, when I bring physicians on, I that I ask them what drove you to it. You know, and I think it's always that experience that you have as a resident. You yeah. know, you're exposed to certain areas of medicine and and then it's just a passion you know it's how we all choose whatever we like and whatever our path is in life but specialty is definitely in pulmonary is it's not as popular as some of the other fields right there's not as many pulmonologists i know when we were looking to hire a pulmonologist there's not as many yeah right 
Um, it, I mean, it just goes with the territory, I guess, right. you know. Um, it's usually combined, so there's a pulmonary and a critical care component to it. Um, so a lot of times you also do you're very busy in the ICU. Um, you know, but certainly not as, you know, not as, uh, uh, not like cardiology or other specialties right. where there's a lot more, you know, potential and, and people are, you know. You're in the ICU a lot. Yes. You're in the ICU a lot. So let's talk about the field of pulmonology and let's talk about how a patient is referred to you and what's a typical referral that you would see. So, you know, we see everything from just a cough that's lingering for weeks that doesn't go away. Um, you know, we see patients with asthma and COPD, mm. um, whether or not they're well controlled, um, <clears throat> and especially those that are obviously are not well controlled. Right. Um, we obviously see patients with uh, lung cancer, you know, do the workup um, and work in concert with um, oncologists and surgeons uh, to really have a team effort and team approach in that sense. We've, you know, a lot of the physicians that I've had on recently, that's seems to be the theme today in medicine. It is a team approach. Yeah. You know, and everybody has a place in that team and it's so important for that communication between the team to get the patient to the level of health that they need to be at. When you have a patient that is referred to you, say someone that has a cough mm-hmm. that doesn't that lingers and go doesn't go away. Do you get that referral from the primary care? Usually a person doesn't seek you out on their own. Sure, yeah, usually it's referrals from a primary care doctor who just wants a specialist to take a look and see if there's anything else that maybe they you know, something that they missed or something else that may, may be going on that needs a specialist. Uh, but also sometimes it's just patients who've noticed that, you know, they've had this cough, it's just not going away, and they, they want somebody to take a look. So a patient can refer themselves. Yes. Right? So if a patient says, you know what, I'm not getting anywhere right now, I want to I want to have another specialist look at that. So a patient can refer themselves. Yes. So if a patient has a cough, what would concern you about a cough? Let's get into some of the, you know, the etiology. So if you have a cough that's not going away, what's something that's concerning to you when you hear? What's some of the questions you would ask? So, I mean, the most concerning would be if the cough is something that where you're bringing up a lot of blood or mm-hmm. even just a few specks of blood. You know, you should never be bringing up blood. Right. Uh, but also, if you have a cough and other things that would make me a little nervous and want to do more workup would be if you've been losing a lot of weight, if you've been having fevers with that cough, um, and if you're you know, waking up with sweats or chills in the morning. Um, all those things are, are more concerning as opposed to just a cough where you just have a cough every day and you right. sort of say, oh, it's nothing to worry about. So the patient's coming in and you're doing a complete history and then some of the triggers. Exactly. For the family history or some of the history would definitely trigger thought processes in your mind as to what to order. Exactly. So if you're hearing a, a history like that where someone's coming in with a, a, a cough that's, you know, bloody and they're waking up with night sweats and they have the fevers, what would be going off in your mind? I mean, the worst case scenario always is lung cancer, mm. uh, especially in someone who smoked. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if you haven't smoked recently, it's it's more about how long you smoked in the past and how much you smoked. Right. Um, so certainly that would be one thing that's definitely, I think, most concerning. How about TB? Do we see much of it now? So TB, we, we still see much, uh, you know, a little bit of it, but not as frequent as it was. Uh, now we see it more in new immigrants. New um, immigrants coming yeah, over. Yeah. 
Uh, and certainly we do PPD, you know, PPD testing and other uh, blood testing to see if you've been exposed. Uh, but again, that's another thing that's very important. You know, if you're coughing up, uh, even if you just have a chronic cough without blood, but you're losing weight, mm-hmm. you're not really, you're feeling more fatigued, you don't really have much of an appetite, and maybe you're having fevers or chills, those are all signs that there's something going on in the body that needs to be worked up. You know, in the healthcare profession, we're always, we have to have our, our, our PPTs done routinely, exactly. you know, as part of being, just being exposed because we're in a hospital environment. But the general population, I don't think routinely gets those, do they? Do they no. get them in, they don't really even get them in their routine physicals. No, it's not a routine thing. You know, if you are going to work in a place such as you're working in a hospital, you're working in a school or school children themselves, you know, that's when you need to have those uh, sort of included with your list of vaccinations. But in general, and and one other thing is with new immigrants, when they come to the country, they have to have that prior workup before they come here. Before they come. Exactly. You know, and uh, we look at some of the other ancillary areas where people can be exposed, like soup kitchens or people working in homeless shelters. They're working with, with people that no, don't necessarily have the resources to take care of themselves. And I think you see that in that population, right? Yes, exactly. Definitely the, you know, people that are homeless or, you know, they're coming into our emergency room. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's, it's scary. So what would you say to a person that doesn't get routine screening? What would be some of the symptoms? that would trigger them to say, I better get checked. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you know you've been exposed to somebody with with active TB, that's always, you know, then you want to have that worked up. But otherwise, just a cough, you know, fevers or, or night sweats, weight loss, mm. uh, just, and by weight loss, it's it's not when you're working out, it's weight loss that you don't expect. You know, if you're right. losing 10, 20 pounds and you're not really doing anything different, that really should be worked up. Definitely. So how would you work that person up? What would what would a typical workup be? So usually, you know, we get, we get a history, you sort of have to gauge what you think the most likely scenario is and what's going on and based on that usually we do either a ppd or a blood test um, mm. and we get an x-ray to see if there's anything in the chest that actually would be an active infection or or signs of an old infection you know years ago they used to put people away for long periods of time in like solariums right yes, to recuperate yes. but the but the treatment now is so much different the treatment is much different yeah so what what how is it treated i know we went down a road of something but it just triggered in my mind because you hear about tb yes on and off and you know it's one of those things that's silent for a while and you don't even know so what's some of the treatment so usually if, if it's just that you've been exposed and it's you don't have active tb then we have many treatment options you, you know it's usually just medications and we watch uh it's a tablet two tablets that you mm-hmm. take a day and we just watch you for a few months and really that's the treatment course to make sure that it doesn't in the future become active anytime you've been exposed even if you don't have active tb it can always become active mm-hmm. so the hope is to prevent that now if you have active tb then obviously we treat you until you're no longer having most of those symptoms like you're not bringing up the phlegm you, you're starting to put the weight on um, and then we know things are improving and then you finish the course you know at home right we used to do i remember before we uh, used to start work way back when they used to do routine chest x-rays we don't yes. do routine chest x-rays anymore it's no. not something that's done exactly. but we you'd be able to see if there was something going on in the chest with the routine chest x-ray way back when now it's only if there's a symptom exactly because exactly. insurances don't pay for routine plus we don't want the exposure right yeah we don't want the exposure and a lot of times you know you get a chest x-rays routinely that don't really tell you anything right. and uh, you know you don't really know why you're necessarily getting them and a lot of times we find things that maybe you've ha- you've been born with you've had this whole time but now that we found it we have to evaluate it yeah and it might lead to needless biopsies and things of that nature so it's only if you know we, we really think there's something to be gained from getting it 
Now, you talked about um, smoking. Yes. And some of the end stages to smoking or some of the, you know, unfortunate outcomes to smoking are lung cancer, but also COPD. Yes. Can you talk a little bit? Because, you know, COPD is one of those things that when I was in nursing school, I can't tell you how much of that I saw. I'm dating myself back. But, you know, way back when, you know, in the 80s, people smoked like crazy. Yes. They truly did. People used it as a form of weight loss. People used it as a form of socialization. The There wasn't out there what's out there now in the risk. People knew the risk, but they were, you know, you had cigarette commercials all over the TV. Mm-hmm. So COPD is is pretty bad. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what that is? So COPD is essentially that your lungs have changed and they don't function as as well as they did in the past Mm. because of smoking. And Mm. usually there's two types of COPD. You know, we refer to emphysema, where you have more lung destruction and the lungs, just the oxygen's not getting in and you just, patients usually get out of breath because Mm. the lungs can't work as they normally Mm. do. And then another type of COPD, which is just called chronic bronchitis, where you just have this cough that just lingers and you usually bring up phlegm. Um, and this is something that just lasts and lasts, you know. And this is something that's caused by years of cigarette smoking. Exactly. So very rarely or if ever do you see anybody with COPD that didn't have a history of smoking at some point in time, correct? Exactly. I mean, there are a few very rare scenarios, you know, uh, especially uh, like immigrants who've been with a wood-burning stove where they're exposed to those fumes when they were young over many years. But the most, but the number one really trigger is is smoking. Is smoking. So how do you treat it? What do you do for someone with COPD? What's the maintenance for someone like that? So the first thing is is obviously diagnosis, but Mm -hmm. the most important thing comes down to stopping smoking mm. because if you're still actively smoking unfortunately that COPD is just going to progress right. um, because of the continued inflammation that, that occurs from the smoking which is what COPD is essentially all about um, so the f- number one thing we do is to try to get patients to stop smoking mm. um, and then you know we have inhalers uh, but those are really for the symptoms you know if, right. you, if you're walking around or going upstairs and you get winded those inhalers may help but it doesn't really do anything to reverse the effects of the smoking on the lungs. So that's why smoking cessation is really the, the number one thing to do. And then we start patients on inhalers. We do breathing tests called pulmonary function tests to sort of assess how severe the COPD is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we follow it over years to, to, to assess if things are stable or if things are getting worse. Are there medications that, in addition to inhalers, that help? Is there any other type of meds? So sometimes you can have what's called an exacerbation, meaning you have a flare-up of your COPD. Um, So you may have just baseline symptoms, meaning you have a little cough here and there, and then you start, because of a viral illness or change in weather, you start having worsening shortness of breath, you start wheezing, having chest tightness, bringing up a lot of phlegm. All those are signs that that it's flaring up, and usually for those we give antibiotics and steroids. Wow, that's really tough because we're told so much with the antibiotics. Yeah. Not to overdo the antibiotics, but with someone that's got a chronic illness, exactly, you, you don't have that choice. Do you ever find with the antibiotic therapy that some work and some don't or some you have to change them? It, it, it also comes down to the severity of the mm. COPD, you know. Mm. But unfortunately, there's so many triggers, just, yeah. just like with asthma. Yeah. The humid weather, ch- you know, change in environment, mold, dust, all those things can trigger an exacerbation in, a, in addition to infections. So the one thing we really can treat, and maybe the only thing, would be infection, which is why we do antibiotics and then the steroids for the inflammation from the COPD. Right. But other than that, we just have to wait for the steroids to really work and, 
and cut down. I've seen on TV, and I'm not as well-versed on COPD as I was years back when I was taking care of patients on the floor, but there's newer medications that I see that are out there that people take that help with their respiratory, with their, with their respirations and with their pulmonary function. What do they do? These medications. So the you know we have what are called short acting medications, uh, you know, namely albuterol, right. and it's usually one of those L shaped inhalers, and patients just take them when they feel symptoms. Right. And th- those are for working right away. Meaning, if you feel out of breath, you you take two puffs, and you and you might feel uh, a difference. And really, what it's doing is it's helping to open up some of the airways that are a little tight because of the inflammation, mm. and then you can breathe better. Um, and then there's long acting inhalers, which don't work right away, but they work over time to reduce that inflammation right. so you use that short acting less because you're less short of breath. Because you're less short of breath. And exactly. it's really a process, right? Exactly. For people that are going through that. Johnny, oh, yeah. do we have to take a break? It's time, right? Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dr. Osahan. Welcome back, everyone. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. We're medically speaking in the morning, and we're medically speaking in the morning today with one of our brand new physicians for St. Mary's Hospital in the Franklin Medical Group, Dr. Dipinder Osahan. Welcome, Doc. He's a pulmonologist with us and recently joined us less than a month ago. And I already grabbed him for radio (laughs) because I'm loving and loving, loving all these new physicians that we have that um, are really the future of our greater Waterbury community and are helping to grow our services. And our pulmonary services are growing by leaps and bounds because he is the fourth addition yes. to our pulmonary team of Dr. Barry, Dr. Zhang, and Dr. Kladner. So now we have four pulmonologists at the Scoville Medical Building. And I'm going to give their number out, but I'll do it at the end too, 203-709-6244. And it's at 133 Scoville Suite, a street, Suite 104. And Johnny yelled at me because I didn't give the phone number out. But you can't call if you do have questions, 203-757-1320. So when we left a few minutes ago, we were talking about COPD. Um, I didn't want this half hour to go away without talking a little bit about lung cancer because, you know, we talk about COPD and the effects of smoking. And really, lung cancer is also a risk. Exactly. If you're a smoker. And here in the greater Waterbury community, for a while, we were participating in a study with um, the Harold Lever Regional Cancer Center, us as well as Waterbury Hospital, and we were doing um, lung cancer screenings um, with a low-dose CT. Mm-hmm. And both um, radiology groups here in the greater Waterbury area are participating. I want to talk a little bit about low-dose CT, and now insurance does cover it yes. for, for patients. So who is who should be doing that, and how often should it be done? So, you know, when they first started doing the screening, they were doing these low-dose CTs, and the benefit of it is essentially that you're giving less radiation. That's why it's called low-dose. Mm-hmm. But hopefully in patients who've been smoking who are at risk for lung cancer, we find cancers that are earlier mm-hmm. and can intervene earlier, meaning they're less, you know, uh, we find them late, uh, less uh, at a later stage. Right. Uh, when obviously it's more, it's more severe. Um, so usually if you are within the age of 55 to 70 um, and you you've smoked uh, more than 30 years um, 
or you or if you're still smoking uh, more than a pack a day um, but it comes out to how much you've been smoking if you've been smoking for 30 years a pack a day that's we call that 30 pack years wow. or if you've been smoking longer or even if you've been smoking let's say 15 years but you smoke two pack a day that still comes down to 30 um, so you would you would qualify for that and essentially it's that we do yearly screening with this low dose cat scan and the hope is that if let's say you were to develop a lung cancer that we would find it earlier and intervene earlier um, and be able to do have more options for treatment and actually in the studies that they did they were able to show that we actually save lives by doing this so what are you looking for on that report from the radiologist what what is the trigger because i think that there's certain degrees right i know i'm very familiar with the mammography and the you know and the outcomes for mammography and the levels we look at for breast density or the birets that we look at for a woman when we call attention to something we see in the breast. I'm not as familiar with the BIRAD, so to say, um, for CT of the lung. So what do you look for as the pulmonologist from the radiologist? Well, actually, just like what you said, there's actually a lung RADS that the radiologist uses to define how uh, likely they think that if we find something that it's either benign or, or if they think it might be something malignant that we'd have to intervene. Right. Um, so it really depends. If they find a nodule or they find lymph nodes that are swollen, uh, then we would further work those up to see is this something that maybe needs to be further evaluated and we monitor closely or should is this something that we think is cancer and then we 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 work that up appropriately and there are are there instances where you'll follow do another lung uh, do another cat scan of the lung like six months out so it really comes down to if we find something, what the size is. Yeah. And that's really the, the main trigger. If it's too small for us to do anything about, and the only option we have is to see if it, if it grows. Because, again, it could be something you've had your whole life that we just mm-hmm. didn't know about because we never did a CAT scan. Because we never did a CAT scan, exactly. right? So, and now the CAT scans, the low-dose CAT scans with the newer technology that all uh, the hospital as well as our community partners have yes. is excellent. You know, so it's minimal radiation, right? Because exactly. it's fast. Exactly. The CAT scan takes like five minutes. <laughs> it's very quick. Right? Yeah. It's really you quick. You just hold your breath and you go through the machine. You and know. you're done. Exactly. And it's not as scary. I know everybody's always so afraid of like an MRI because MRI, you're closed in. A CAT scan is just a big donut. Exactly. Right? You just exactly. slide in and slide out. Exactly. It's exactly. pretty fast. If you find a nodule on someone, what is... What is that? What's the next steps with that? What happens? So nodule essentially is just a dot. We don't know what it is. Uh, and depending on the size, we may say, let's you know, let's watch it, or now we need to do something further. Uh, but it really comes down to if you're, if you're a heavy smoker, if we think the likelihood of this being lung cancer is higher, then if the size is large enough, usually about 8 centimeters or higher, we would do further testing to see, such as like a PET scan, uh, which is a test where we essentially give this uh, radioactive glucose mm-hmm. and anything that's active will take this up so if right. it's so if it is cancer which should be active it will light up on that it'll scan, light up which and gives, exactly. other areas could light up too right exactly exactly and that's all used for staging to say you know is this just one nodule itself or is there also lymph nodes or anything else that's involved and obviously if you have history of other cancers mm-hmm. we always have to be worried about absolutely so if something if you do see something and something lights up would the protocol be to remove that area so again, it comes down to if we think it's it's cancer, right. uh, we would do a PET scan to see if it lights up, um, or certainly diagnostic testing, whether it's with a bu- uh, bronchoscopy doing biopsies, uh, because at the end of the day, you really want to have 
tissue to be able to say to this is what it is and, and to be sure that this is cancer. And gives you a staging on it too, exactly, right? Exactly. And then once you've staged, then you can say, you know, is the patient really healthy enough for, for surgery? And also that comes down to the stage. So the hope is that you, we find something early enough that the, that the stage is, is early enough that we can just take whatever portions involved out. Right. You know, which is, uh, and hopefully, scare the patient enough to stop smoking. Exactly. You know, exactly. get them down the path of healthy. Exactly. Smoking cessation is, is, is the key thing. Once, if, if an area has to be removed, you follow the patient after that, you would do CAT scans, more screening CAT scans in the future on them, correct? Exactly. So because even their be- history. Exactly. Even before we take that portion of the lung out, we do what's called a pulmonary function test or a breathing test really to say, how is your breathing now? And it gives us an idea if you're, if you're, you'll be able to tolerate having a portion of your lung, lung taken removed. out. Because unfortunately the options are less, uh, are more, we're more limited if, if you're, if you're older, if you have more health problems. And unfortunately, if you already have COPD underlying that we can't do something such as taking a portion of the lung out. It's so important to get screened early. We say that with mammography all the time. Finding something er- early yes. means a higher cure rate. The same with lung cancer. So what would you tell people in our audience if you smoke, follow up with your 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 primary care and talk about this? Exactly. It's very important to talk about, you know, uh, because, again, it, if, if you've smoked a long time, certainly you're at risk. Um, and what we want to do is be able to work this up and make sure that this isn't what's going on. So, Dr. Osahan, believe it or not, we're at the end. Oh, well. That was fast, right? Yeah. We're really, really, really excited to have you as part of the Franklin Medical Group in St. Mary's Hospital. Now I get to see you all the time passing in the hallways. Well, it's great and this is this isn't this just to warn you, this isn't your one and only. <laughs> so that means when you when once I get you on the radio and you do as well as you do, you have to come back. <laughs> so we'll definitely get you back on. We're gonna have your partner on, oh, Dr. Great. Kaladner. He will be on Wednesday evening. If anyone would like to listen, we will be on at six o'clock Wednesday evening. And Dr. Kaladner will be talking about we're calling it the Great Eight. We're gonna be talking about eight hours of sleep and how you should be getting it every night. He is definitely our sleep medicine specialist, and he'll be talking about light boxes, which he did before, but there's been some news on light boxes. So Jen Clement, our communication specialist, gave us a bunch of stories for him to talk about. So we're we're excited to have him. So we are so happy you could join us today. So this is Dr. Depinder Osahan. He is at 133 Scoville Street uh, in Waterbury Suite 104. And the phone number there is 203-709-6244. You can go on our website, stmh.org, click on Franklin Medical Group, and under specialty and pull him up, you'll be able to read all about him. Our website looks a little different, has brand new colors to follow along with our, our Trinity Health of New England. So we're pretty excited about that. So check us out. I want everyone to have a great weekend. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital Exceptional Care every patient, every day.